0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey, Java Junkies, hope you are doing great today, perhaps enjoying a steaming hot mug of your favorite coffee or caffeinated beverage. So glad you could join us today because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And today I am speaking with Raj Kumar who is the founding president and editor-in-chief of Devex, the media platform for the global aid and development community. And Devex is also the largest provider of recruiting and business development services for global development. The Washington Post newspaper has called Devex the Bloomberg of foreign aid. DevEx actually began as a social enterprise 18 years ago, while Raj was a graduate student at the Harvard Kennedy School. Today, DevEx has offices in five countries and a staff of 150 serving a global audience of more than a million aid workers and development professionals. Raj, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I am ready, ready to talk about all this.
0: Excellent. So, we are going to dive right in to your current job as the head kahuna of DevEx. Give us a sense of what you do.
1: So a lot of my role is on the news side. So kind of thinking about editorial questions, you know, what are we going to cover? we got reporters all over the world. What are the most important issues happening in our industry? And what's the right way to cover them? Um, so we might be writing about things like child marriage or we might be writing about things like maternal death or things like that. How do we cover them in a way that resonates with our audience that's useful to them? How do we put our limited resources out there in the world and and cover these topics? So I spent a good par- portion of my time on that aspect of what we do. And then the other side of my job really is thinking about kind of the business strategy, the business model that underpins all this. Uh, How do we make money doing what we're doing so we can, you know, pay the the team we have and grow it. Ultimately, all that wraps up in one big ball, which is around impact. Like why do we exist as an organization? What kind of impact are we trying to make in the world?
0: So let's start with that last bit. What is the impact you're trying to make?
1: Let me just talk about global development. And I think that'll be a good window into what our impact is. So this is an industry. A lot of people don't even know it as an industry. They might have heard of the aid industry. Uh, But it's really a $200 billion industry. And it's all the money coming from rich countries going to poor ones. This could be philanthropies like the Gates Foundation. It could be the World Bank or USAID, government aid agencies. It could be like the American Red Cross. You know, There are lots of different organizations, small and large, that are working to alleviate poverty, improve the environment, support women and girls, all kinds of issues around the world. It turns out it's a big industry. There's a lot of players in it. I think a lot of people have the perspective, which is kind of right, that this is an industry that doesn't necessarily work all that well, that there are some inefficiencies in the way it operates. Um, that it's a little bit hard to know once you make that donation, like where's it really going? And is it actually having the impact I wanted to make? So what we're doing at DevEx is we're a social enterprise that's trying to make this industry just work better, work more efficiently. So we do that by providing information about what's actually going on. So, you can go to our website and you can read news articles about what's happening around the world. You can search in our database, like show me all the projects dealing with HIV AIDS in Latin America and see them all there. Who's funding them? You can search for professionals working in this field and see who else is working and and working in the space. So, it's kind of the information clearinghouse, the hub of the industry with the goal that if we put all the information out there, we make it really transparent. We can help this This industry to work more like an open market where the best ideas bubble up, where the most talented people and organizations get hired, get the grant money, get to do the work. Um, especially organizations on the ground and especially professionals working and living and from the countries where the work is happening. So that's really what we're trying to do. Our tagline is do good, do it well. Um, it's not just enough to have good intentions and think, oh, like well, let's go do some important things in the world. It's just to do it well. It's to do it in a way that's effective. And we try to drive that in our industry.
0: So you've mentioned social enterprise both just a moment ago and also in the time for coffee espresso shots. Could you explain to our listeners who may not, be familiar with what a social enterprise is. What the heck is it?
1: Yeah, the basic idea is social enterprise is like a business, but that not only drives financial returns, but also drives some kind of impact in the world. And there's a lot of debate within that. Like, well, should it be a not-for-profit that just generates money because you're selling a product or a service and doing some good with that money uh, and and the work you do in the world, or can it actually make a profit? So there's some debate about the exact definition. Um, but the main thing is that. The work you're doing every day in your business is also doing something really positive in the world. So imagine like opening a bakery in an underserved community where you're hiring marginalized people, people otherwise couldn't get a job, maybe ex-convicts, have a hard time getting employed, and you're giving them a chance to get back on their feet. And so every loaf of bread they bake um, is more money in their pocket. It's helping them and their families. It's also creating this nutritious product that you're serving this community that needs it with, and you're making money at the same time, right? It's like this win-win. Uh, so, lots of social enterprises in the world now, and they're um, working in all kinds of sectors, you know, food, uh, clothing, and uh, in our case, media.
0: So, break down a day for me. Take us inside Raj Kumar's typical day. What time do you get up? How many hours are you working? What does it look like? I'm sure there is no... Typical day, but give us a flavor of what they're like.
1: Sure. So I've got a five year old and a four year old at home. So I have not set my alarm clock in years. I'm <laughs> um, not even sure I remember how to do that. I basically wake up at like five ish every day because of the little ones um, making noise and waking up and getting the house uh, crazy. So um, I'm up pretty early and I'm basically right at it. The, and the day for me, of course, there's like, you know, time on email. We use Slack, which is like our internal messaging system of time on Slack, communicating with my colleagues. But my job is very external. So I spend a lot of the day meeting with other organizations or um, trying to recruit people and hire people to join us. So meeting somebody who, you know, contact or a friend who works somewhere else or giving a speech somewhere or talk or presentation or getting interviewed like this. Uh, moderating a panel. So I spend, I'd say, most of my time not in front of my computer, uh, but just out and about Um, here in D.C. and all over the world, where I travel a lot around the world for this kind of work. So a lot of my time is just talking to other people. And uh, part of the reason we we are and try to be that hub for the industry, in order to do that well, in order to be the the editor-in-chief of this organization, the president of this organization, I kind of have to know who's doing what around the world. So I spend a lot of time just talking to folks.
0: So as I said in the introduction, uh, DevX has obviously more than arrived from this idea that you had back in 2000, maybe even before then. We'll get to that in a moment. The Washington Post has called you the Bloomberg of foreign aid. I don't know if you agree with that. But this began as an idea when you were a grad student at Harvard Kennedy School. Tell us how you breathe life into... This idea.
1: Well, I think one thing that helps a lot is being a little bit ignorant. <laughs> you know, if I knew back then how hard it would have been <laughs> and how long the road was to build an organization like this, I mean, maybe I would have been scared off. But myself and, my, and a few close friends, we had this vision, and we we just felt like the work was really important, and that there's something we could do, um, and it seemed kind of easy. It was like so obvious. Why isn't there this hub? So I would, I, and when I was in grad school, I'd ask basic questions like, "When I graduate, I want to get a job doing global development." So is there like a list of all the NGOs in the world so I can just see like who they are and and look for jobs there and people sort of say no, that that list doesn't really exist Um, and I was like, all right, well, is there like a a magazine or a newspaper that just publishes like articles about what's happening? No, not really. Um, You know, there's some content, there's some things but it's not really like there's no magazine or or central place to go and what about like a listing of jobs? Well, there's, there's some of those things but they're very limited, they're country specific or so I thought this is crazy, like why isn't there a hub for all this information like there is in so many other industries like you look at the legal profession or the finance profession like bloomberg almost any other industry there there have been for many years trade journals or magazines or events conferences an online hub of some kind so this just seems so easy and obvious that we were like oh this is gonna be quick you know uh, and then when we started we realized how hard it would, would actually turn out to be because this was an industry that didn't even see itself as an industry really Back in the year 2000, people kind of looked at their work and said, well, I work for this NGO. I work for UNICEF. And that's what I am. I'm a UNICEF person. And someone else said, well, I work for Save the Children. I'm a Save the Children person. Uh, or I work for the French government aid agency. And, and so they saw themselves kind of in different worlds. And we said, no, all this eventually is really going to come together. And we're all just, aren't we all trying to achieve the same goals? And eventually, this will be like one big industry. And we'll need to know what each other's doing. And that was our vision. But... It took a long time to get there.
0: So how did you do it?
1: A lot of it was just persistence. You know, we were, when we first started, we were out of my apartment. We moved out to DC and we had a two bedroom apartment. We had four people sleeping there and four more who came to work. So eight of us working there during the day. Um, and it took us several years to get out of like the apartment as office <laughs> phase of our growth. Um, and I guess along the way, it would have been easy to kind of say, boy, this is not Growing as fast as we want, or it's so hard, you know. Let's move on. But actually, I think my colleagues, uh, myself, my partners, we just loved it too. You know, we loved the work, we loved what we were trying to do, so we were able to stick to it. And I think that was a lot of a lot of our success is just outlasting everyone, you know, outlasting the skeptics.
0: <laughs> but you also dropped out of the Kennedy School.
1: I did, yeah, I did. Basically, when we first started this, this was my first year at the Kennedy School, and I thought I've got to finish my degree. I've got one more year of grad school. You know, my parents were really proud that I was going there. And and I couldn't even imagine the idea of dropping out. But I thought, all right, well, who's going to run this thing? How are we going to make this work? So I actually went out and found a, a CEO and a COO uh, who were both uh, men in their 50s who had ex- you know very extensive career experience and had done great things. And, and I said, well, you would you be willing to be our CEO and our CEO? And they, they agreed. And and, I, you know, I don't know whether it really hit them what it was going to be like, And you know, when they came to our apartment and they saw this is it. This is the whole operation. Uh, but I was realizing this isn't really going to work. And I was meeting with the dean of the Kennedy School at the time, Joe Nye. And he was asking me about DevX and, and what I'm doing and why. And, and finally, he kind of said, you know, didn't you kind of come to the Kennedy School to do something like this? And I said, yeah, this is really the thing I'm excited about. And he said, well, why don't you leave and do that? The Kennedy School will always be here. You're welcome back anytime. Go do this thing. So I dropped out and I called my parents and said, you know, the dean advised me to drop out, which helped smooth it over a little bit, uh, although I still hear about it in my family. Um, but, You're
0: such a failure, Raj.
1: <laughs> but I never ended up going back and uh, uh, it, was, it really turned out to be a great decision.
0: How has the development industry changed since you started DevX?
1: It's changed enormously. One way it's changed is that there's a lot more private philanthropy, and we all know about Bill Gates and Melinda Gates, and that's obviously a huge one. I mean they are their foundation is at the scale of government aid agencies now. I mean, it's really large. Uh, but there are many others that people we haven't really heard of, but that are out there doing more and more phil- and that's coming. There's a kind of a tidal wave of billionaire philanthropy coming from all over the world that's uh, really changing our industry. Um, the other is the role of private sector companies. I look at a company like Starbucks, and I say they're a global development company, and of course, they're a coffee company apropos of our you know conversation now, uh, but you know when, when we walk into a Starbucks, we're not even surprised anymore to see like the coffee of the day is from Rwanda or it's from Guatemala or it's from Ethiopia, countries that are at the very bottom of the income scale globally, and they're just trying to develop and uh, you know Starbucks. Says, look, we got to get the best coffee in the world. And we need to go where that potential is. And we need to work directly with the farmers and make sure that they're growing great quality beans, but they're also not hurting the environment, that their kids are going to school. So a company like that, even though it's a big business in a way, it's also like a social enterprise. You know, it's also trying to make the world better as it makes money. And that's been a big shift in our industry. So nowadays, like if you go to a DevX conference, you'll sure see lots of NGOs. Um, lots of nonprofits. You'll see lots of government agencies, but you'll see lots of corporations and you'll see lots of philanthropists. And, and actually, there's a lot of opportunity to work together. You know, We don't always agree. Not everybody always agrees on, on everything, but there are a lot of opportunities to actually partner and work together and make the world a better place.
0: Absolutely. And certainly during my time at Mercy Corps, I got to see because of the various companies that Mercy Corps partnered with, that they are increasingly looking Even more than a Starbucks at the bottom of the uh, pyramid there as markets for their products. So even selling into those markets and building up those undeveloped economies to help them enhance their bottom line.
1: Absolutely. And one of the great things about that, too, is that we're starting to shift from seeing uh, the poorest people in the world as kind of victims and realizing, you know, they're just like us. They're, they're people with all the uh, potential to change their lives. And if you see them as consumers... Um, it changes the dynamic a little bit. Now they have a lot more voice in the process. So of course, we're talking about people who are often earning 50 cents a day, 75 cents a day. I mean, this is a different... We're consuming that much. And um, so their challenges are very different than those of us who are maybe in university or you know uh, listening to a podcast, certainly. But it's important that we see them as people who have all the agency to change their own lives. And we support them in that. And not that we're just you know kind of taking over that agency from them.
0: So many of our listeners are themselves still in college. There are those who've graduated, but for those who, let's say, they go to the DevX website, they look at what the job openings are, whatnot, where would you point them if they are looking for the less traveled paths? What are the less obvious places to look for entry-level jobs if they're interested in, in this industry?
1: I think um, some of the less obvious ones are looking at smaller organizations. So what often happens is people say, well, I've heard of Mercy Corps or I've heard of Save the Children. Those organizations get lots of attention and lots of people applying for jobs. But there's so many organizations doing great work around the world. that might not be as big, um, but doing great work. And a lot of college students just haven't heard of them. And so I would say first thing is use DevEx to do your homework. Go to our site. We have a database of all these organizations working in development, the kind of thing I wish I had when I was in grad school. So... Go in there and look to see who's doing what around the world and study these groups and read the news every day and get familiar with it. And that might help you find just organizations that you never heard of, but actually doing amazing things. And have job openings uh, all over. So I think that's that's one thing. Another road less traveled is start your own Development was not always an entrepreneurial field. It was like, you know, there are big institutions and you join one of them. It's more and more opportunity to be a social entrepreneur yourself. Start your own small organization. Uh, so that's something that, that you could consider. And then... It's really hard, but there are some people who, who do kind of like get on a plane and go to a, a part of the world where they think they could maybe help out and, and do something. And hopefully they're bringing a skill set with them, but maybe try to volunteer locally until you build a career yourself somewhere right on the ground. I mean, it's, it's
0: it's done. It happens. Another Time for Coffee interview, David Nicholson, who also works at Mercy Corps, he and his wife, actually, I think she was his girlfriend at the time, they did some research online to find potential openings and communicated online with some of these. And they went to Uganda because it was a English-speaking African country where they knew they'd be able to speak the local dialect. But But there are ways that you can navigate this now, that maybe aren't just like getting on a plane without knowing anything before you hit the ground that can help make that landing even smoother.
1: Yeah, I agree. And the other thing is if you're still in college and listening to this, you know, use your study abroad opportunity I think it's important to kind of stretch if this is the right field for you, or if this is the kind of stuff you're interested in, go study abroad in Uganda or do try to do some kind of summer thing. You don't have to just do London, you know, or Paris. Uh, There's a big world out there with a lot of opportunities to to learn um, if you push yourself a little.
0: That is great advice. What other classes do you recommend or areas of study do you recommend for those Java junkies who are still in school? I think
1: business is an important thing. It, you know, in the end, whether you're working in a nonprofit organization or a foundation or a social enterprise, you need to know like the basics of accounting and budgeting and financial modeling. Those are really useful tools. Um knowing something about tech is really important. I mean, it's underpinning so much of what's happening in our industry. You don't want to be the person who says, Yeah, I'm just not a tech person. I just don't know anything about this. You don't necessarily have to be a programmer, although that could be a useful skill set, but you should at least know enough uh, about technology that you can think about applications of it in the kind of work that would be done. Like, how could I use an SMS messaging platform? Uh, or how would I? what kind of connectivity options are there in places that are kind of off the grid uh, around the world? Or, or what about um, microgrid solar technologies or wind technologies where there's no energy connections? Like, at least knowing a little bit about that enough is kind of important. And so, I don't think it's good enough to just say, well, yeah, that's not my thing. You kind of have to get into it a little, make it your thing. Those, those are important. And then kind of the soft skills matter a lot too. You know, this is an international industry. So you're meeting people from all different cultures and knowing how to communicate really well and listen really well. Those interpersonal skills are particularly important in this, this field. Um, If you just sort of, Carolyn and do things your own way. That's not really the way it's going to work so much in our space. So that, that's an important thing is to have those interpersonal social skills. And I think if you're in university, you get a lot of opportunities to do that. Just even getting to know people from different cultures in your own university.
0: You're obviously an incredibly accomplished businessman, journalist, you know, all of the <laughs> above many, many different hats that you wear. Are there some skills that you'd don't have that you wish you did? And how are you coping?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I'm always trying to learn and push myself to learn more. I think sometimes it's um, subject matter expertise, like feeling like I'm interviewing an expert in something and I realize, like, boy, I really don't know enough about the basics to have an intelligent conversation with this person and the development sector is so broad. It could be something around like immunology or like it could be something very specific, um, but that's really important. I actually interviewed Bill Gates um, half a year, six months ago on malaria and really had to phone up on my malaria knowledge because he's like a world-class expert in this thing. So I really <laughs> studied it and tried to understand uh, all the issues around malaria. So sometimes it's like a a sectoral thing or, you know, subject matter. And then sometimes it's more of like a general skill, like uh, technology, something I mentioned before. You know, I'm not a programmer and I don't have that training, but I really tried to push myself to read a lot, to ask a lot of questions. And we have a whole tech team here at Devex. And I feel like I can have a real conversation with them because of that. Um, And that's important.
0: You're clearly somebody who's also a skilled networker is this something that came naturally to you or is this something that you've worked at? And do you have any tips for how to be a better networker?
1: I'd say more came naturally than than I worked at it, but also kind of practice helps, I'm sure, you know, and like just being out there doing a lot of it has probably made me a better networker. Part of the reason maybe I've done it successfully is that I don't think of it as networking. Networking kind of has a negative connotation. And I think sometimes people hear, hear that and they're told like, go network. And they're like, oh, that's the last thing I want to do. You know? I don't want to go and have to talk to a bunch of strangers and pretend to make small talk. And when I'm really actually after their business card, because I want to ask for a job. Or I think the more you can put yourself, just force yourself to be in positions where you're meeting other people and get yourself into a mindset where you actually care about talking to this person and, and here listening to them and learning. That's a better form of networking. It's more, if you can make that authentic and actually get interested in it, it doesn't feel as mercenary. Like you're just out there chasing someone's email address. And I think sometimes students, younger people, they're told to do networking. And it sounds like it's like bitter medicine. Like, Oh, I guess I got to go do this thing. Hopefully you can get to the point where you love it and you enjoy it. Like, Again, I go to lots of events and conferences. I love meeting all these folks who are doing, I think, pretty exciting stuff. I'm constantly learning new things. And I guess it's networking, you know, but it's it's something I enjoy.
0: I know you went to Georgetown to the School of Foreign Service undergrad. is What was your major and your minor? So
1: I did the international politics major. They call it concentration there, but it's a major. And then I didn't have a minor, but it did a certificate in science, technology, and international affairs. Um, This program they call STEA, which is now a pretty popular program there at Georgetown, but it was brand new when I did it. And I thought it was really interesting to get to take some courses in computer science and in in other, other science and tech areas. So, yeah, that's what I studied.
0: And did you know then what you wanted to do? Why did you study this?
1: I kind of had a, I had sort of a couple of threads, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. But one of the big threads was kind of politics and policy I was really interested in. And the other one was global development. I had just a really good fortune. My dad's from India, so I'd spent time, some, some of my childhood in India. And I had an aunt and uncle who um, were development scholars. And uh, they would take me on visits to villages and I got to see. And so I was like, you know, a kid and I knew what development was. You know, I had an idea what that field was. That helped a lot, obviously, in kind of shaping my my thinking. But a lot of it was just being a little kid in a in a village in India. You know, I would play soccer with the other kids there. I was the only kid who owned sneakers. Right. Like so you you get that experience and you think yeah, I want to do something that has an impact in the world and something that's connected to these issues. And so that helped a lot to focus my, my interest at Georgetown.
0: Did you do any extracurriculars or internships or any kind of engagement outside of hitting the books at school that you look back on and you're like, wow, I'm so glad I did that.
1: Yeah. I guess the main thing was this sort of politics, other area of interest that I had. So I was in student government And uh, I I was like a representative for the class. And Georgetown is a very political school, as you might imagine, being in in Washington, D.C. So it was a big deal. And I was in student government. I was vice president of the student body. And then I decided not to run for president of the student body because a friend of mine had worked for President Clinton in the White House. And he's actually the youngest White House staffer, maybe ever. He was like 19, came from Arkansas. And uh, finally, he realized, I got to do my college degree. So, he, he got, got into Georgetown. We became fast friends. And he said, you know, by the way, one of my old colleagues is looking for a volunteer to work, you know, a few hours a week. Um, need somebody who speaks Spanish. And I speak Spanish. So, I thought, okay, I could I could maybe go there and, and help out. So, I met with them. And I ended up basically just like living in the White House for weeks. Like I would just, you know, show up early in the morning and help print stuff and staple stuff and whatever people needed. I was just around until they finally got so sick of me. They just gave me an actual job and I got to do presidential advance and travel around with the president and set up events, you know, very kind of low level work, but it was really a great experience. And working in campaigns, I think is probably the training I got that was most valuable because, and I recommend this to anybody. Yeah. uh, Why? Because campaigns are like, um, time gets compressed Because things are moving so fast. The pace is so fast and there's a real deadline, which is election day, right? In a sense, people don't care how old you are. You know, there isn't this hierarchy in the same way that there are in other industries. Like, oh, you got to put in your time and pay your dues. You could be 18 years old if you're really good and you're really working hard they'll give you responsibility. And you can learn so much so quickly because the pace is so fast. So working on a campaign for six months can feel like years of experience, you know? And the level of responsibility... Kind of like dog years. (laughs) It is, yeah. And the level of responsibility you can get is the kind of thing you otherwise wouldn't have gotten for many years in a professional career. So I think it's just great learning experience. Um, If you've got an issue you care about or a candidate you care about or something, I I highly recommend it.
0: So you graduated from... Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and what was your first job of out of school, and how did you get it?
1: So, it's very related to this political stuff, right? So, I, um, as I mentioned, had, had worked at the White House in this advanced job. I actually took off a semester of school, keep working at the White House. Luckily, I had enough AP credits and things so I could still graduate on time. So, uh, when I graduated, I knew that there was a governor's race happening in New Jersey, which is my home state. So. All my other friends had jobs at like investment banks and consulting firms. And but I was like, I don't want to do that. So, and luckily my parents were supportive. I just packed all my stuff in my car and drove up to New Jersey. And I stopped at the first governor's campaign, which was in South Jersey, closer to DC. And I just walked in and said, hey, you know, um, I would love to volunteer and help. And, you know, the, the campaign, the election was coming up in just a couple of weeks. And so, they said, all oh, right, give me your resume. And I did. And they kind of sent me back to lick envelopes. And I did that for like three days. And then somebody walked in finally after three days and said, hey, did you work at the White House? I just read your resume. And I was like, yeah, I had this you know, low-level experience there. And you know, come with me. We want, to have, we want you to do this and this. And before I knew it, I was you know meeting the candidate and running their election night event, doing all kinds of fun stuff. He lost, but the campaign manager called the winner's campaign. Uh, this was a Democratic primary. <laughs> And said, hey, you know, I've got this young kid here who seems to be a hard worker. Would you hire him? And they said, sure. And so I got a job for the other candidate for the general election. Worked on that race. He lost. But I met the political consultant working on that campaign. And we hit it off. And he hired me to his company. So I kind of jumped from political job to political job for a little while there. And it was really exciting.
0: What is the best career advice you've ever gotten?
1: Um, I think it's to, like, stick with things, you know, like, especially, I think, important now for younger people who see their career as like, you know, I'm going to do two years here and then three years there. I'm going to jump around and learn a lot that way, which can be a good thing to do. But the advice I got was when you get to the thing that you're doing and it's the thing you want to be doing, stick with it um, and develop some mastery at it. And so probably a mistake I could have easily made was not being with DevEx for 18 years, you know, not running this thing this long. But I think it's actually turned out to be great to stick with something. And see it all the way through. And
0: are there days when you've felt like not sticking with it?
1: Not now, but definitely years ago, like a decade ago, I was getting really burned out. It was a really hard slog. And I was like, how many, how much longer is it to get to the sort of vision we wanted to build here? And I'm really happy that I didn't succumb to those feelings and sort of said, no, we're going to stick through this and build it to what it's become.
0: So how did you do that? That actually is going to be one of my next questions, and that is. We all go through ups and downs during the course of our career. And some, sometimes it happens in, at every step. Sometimes they're just particular steps. But there, 10 years ago, what was it in you that helped you to kind of dig deep and persevere?
1: I don't know. I mean, that could be a hard question to answer. I don't know exactly what it was in me. Um, I think part of it might have been my colleagues and partners. So this wasn't just me alone. I think maybe if i had it, I've been doing this totally by myself. I would have felt differently. But I have three really close friends who started this with me and we were doing it all together. And so you're in the boat with others and maybe everybody's feeling like this is hard work, but at least you're together. You know, so I think that helped a lot. And I think having some of this self-awareness I mentioned earlier, just like knowing that all right, there's some things here I'm good at doing and I can, if I just stick at it, we will eventually get there. I think maybe those have helped, but I'm not sure. It's a tough question to answer.
0: How much of your, your secret sauce do you think is in addition to being a natural networker, in addition to having the ability to take an idea and stick with it is the perseverance and the ability to suffer, yeah. get beyond that?
1: Yeah, I think that matters. Um, I think it does matter that you have to be willing to like do what it takes to get to get ahead and it's not always going to be glamorous work, you know, when you're starting an organization, uh, you got to do you got to lick the envelopes, you know, you got to you got to do the basics too. And I think if you're If you're kind of rushing to the glory uh, too quickly, you might miss the journey. And the journey is part of You kind of have to learn to enjoy that journey in a way. Learn from the ground up, I think, is a valuable thing.
0: How do you manage the stress that comes with being the CEO of a big organization and a dad to two young children and obviously the other part, which would be a spouse? Do you have any things that you bring into your day that help with managing it? I
1: think I've gotten good at just having kind of a big picture perspective so that I try not to let the small crises that come across my desk many times during the day. Um, you know, I, I try not to blow them up too much in my own mind and kind of see them for what they are and sort of say, okay, this is a problem we're going to, we're going to try to solve it and we're going to solve it in the next 10 minutes and that's it and move on. I think that helps if you have, you need to have that sort of perspective if you want to, run an organization because there's always things happening. Um, and you can't, you can't just kind of feed into a drama. Otherwise, you'll never get out of that. I think in a way, having my little ones and, and being uh, married is actually helpful. I mean, it's, it is stress too in a way, of course, but, but it also gives you perspective uh, about what matters in life. And uh, that, that helps a lot too. I love to work. I love to work hard. I don't mind having lots of things on my plate at once so long as it's stuff I want to be doing you know and i want to be hanging out with my kids or or my wife or or actually doing this work i, I enjoy it
0: so final time for coffee question mm-hmm. which is if you could go back to college based on the the experience that you've gleaned over the last number of years what might you do differently
1: i guess maybe one thing would be make even more friends you know like the thing about college it's so valuable is the the people you meet. I mean, that's a big part of it. And it's easy to kind of get into your own little social group, I think, if you're in college. I I was pretty good about not doing that and having friends from different parts of the little social cliques that are around. But my recommendation to people who are in college today is to just see this as a unique opportunity. To develop great friendships, and some of them really last. I mean, I've got friends from college that I see all the time, that I talk to all the time, and uh, there's nothing like that. You know, you can't replace that later in life. I, see, you know, obviously, you can make friends anytime in life, but there's something about that moment um, that's really unique. And I think if I could go back, that's probably what I would put even more time and effort into that.
0: There's something about people who knew you before, yeah, any of the. Right. The fame and the whatever other accolades that yeah. that come to you in life that kind of keep you humble.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. They keep you humble and they're great. You know, having a, a true friend over many years is just something that you can't replace.
0: Raj Kumar, thank you so much for making time to have coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today. I got a lot out of this and I know that they will too. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.